Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Gills Talk podcast. I am your host, Kristen Kibblehouse, and today we have an interview with Gills Club scientist, Dr. Ernella Wydelli. We are going to hear about the multiple research projects that she has going on in her life, including a non-sharky one related around COVID-19. Before I do get into our interview today, I just want to remind you all to please rate, subscribe, and review the podcast. It helps us get noticed throughout our different platforms that we host the Gills Talk on, and as well as follow us on social media to keep up to date with podcast episodes, and as well as what is happening with the Gills Club in general. So now let's kick off our interview with Dr. Ornella Wydelli. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Gills Talk interview. Today, we have Gills Club scientist, Dr. Ornella Wydelli. So welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's a huge honor to be here. Oh, well, thank you so much for saying that. So I always say the last few episodes, if anyone has been listening, I've always said that you have the record for the furthest podcast, and someone else comes on, and you have the record. Right now, I think, again, you might be the next record for me right now. So you're coming all the way from from Switzerland? Exactly. Yes. I'm six hours ahead of you. Yes. So from Switzerland. So thank you again for taking the time out of your schedule and trying to, you know, figure out our times that we are matching up exactly. But so to kick off with everything, we'd love to hear about then what is your current research focused on? I'm besides working on my upcoming um, diving expedition to the Red Sea and some outreach um, activities that I've scheduled for the upcoming months, I'm focusing on, mainly on three research projects. So the first one is project on the niche ecology of juvenile reef sharks in Seychelles and French Polynesia. The second one I'm focusing on a actually non-sharky project, which is early detection on COVID-19. And then the third that I'm working on is a project on the foraging ecology of whale sharks. So it's a little bit broad, but let me explain you a little bit more in detail what each project entails. So the first project, the niche ecology of juvenile reef sharks is actually my PhD project. And I defended my PhD in um, summer 2020. So the project is over, but there's still one last chapter that hasn't been published yet. So the project is still quite going on. And to summarize what the project entailed, let me explain it to you like that. So the, I was looking at the niche ecology. So that means I was focusing on the role an animal has in its um, ecosystem. So in my case, it was the black tip reef shark and the sycophant lemon sharks. And I was looking at the baby. So the tiny, cute pups. So my aim, or like the first aim of my PhD was to look at the population ecology of those pups in Seychelles and actually in a small atoll on the St. Joseph Atoll, which we knew has juvenile sharks, but before my PhD, we didn't know when they're born, how big they are when they're born, um, what is their population size, how, how, how quick do they grow? So these were all questions we answered in the first and the second um, chapter of my PhD, which are published. And then a bigger part of my PhD was actually looking at the foraging ecology. So what we did, we looked at what are their sharks? What are they eating? How much should they eat? And how much should they wait? And then what we did was very interesting in my PhD is we compared the pups from Seychelles, which I said before, the St. Joseph Atoll is a 
like remote, very secure environment and compared our pups with the pups in Morea in French Polynesia. And Morea is a, an island which is way less protected. So the pups are in, let's say, more dangerous or get, get born in more dangerous areas. And what we found, which was very interesting, is that the pups in, at the St. Joseph Atolls, they're quite, they're smaller when we compare them to the pups in Morea, but they were growing or they were gaining weight quicker within their first months and weeks, months in their life which was pretty um, surprising, right? So um, what we found, the, the ones in Morea, they're actually big and they're born. And we know that they're just born because of their open umbilical, umbilical button. So we knew that they were just freshly born. We found some of the ones we recaptured, we saw that they were actually losing girth. So they were getting skinnier. So the reason, yeah, we were like, okay, why is that like that? But then because from each of the sharks that we measured, we also took stomach samples. So what we found is that the pups in Seychelles, they had way more to eat compared to the pups in Morea. So that's why actually very simple, the ones who have more to eat and were eating more were growing quicker. So this is also a chapter that has been published, which was a very interesting study. And just the fact that you have two species um, in total different environments, right? Like so far away from each other, both in the Indo-Pacific, but Morea in the south of the Pacific and St. Joseph in the Western Indian Ocean. That's so interesting. So then, I don't know then if you could talk about it then with your findings that since you're working on your last cha chapter, then has there been competitive then between food between lemons and black tips in that area? So, and then this project, the reason why I'm still working on my PhD project is that, as I said before, the last chapter hasn't been published yet, which is actually the most interesting. I'd like to give you still some information because it's hopefully soon out and published. So what we did is investigating if competition influences the traffic and spatial niche pattern of those two shark species. So usually when you have two similar species in the in a small area, we would expect that they're um, segregating in their niches so they can coexist together. Mm -hmm. And usually it's expected that there's a more dominant species and one which is subordinate, right? But in sharks, it's very hard to know because they're large animals. It's hard to really know which one is more um, competitive than the other. So our big, big advantage that we have with um, working with juvenile sharks is that we were actually able to conduct captivity work. So we were testing competitive patterns in the two species and to look which one is more dominant and which one is more subordinate. Mm -hmm. And what our aim was then to see if the more dominant one shows different niche pattern than the subordinate and our and expectation, our theory was that the subordinate one would use a broader area, would use, uh, would eat a broader, would have a broader diet. And what we found was very surprising. It was actually that case. But since it's not published, I'm not going to tell you which one was the more dominant of the two species. But it was super interesting to see that. And obviously, it's not the only reason what for what mm -hmm. we found is there's also lots of predation but um so that's kind of like the wrap up of my phd project while i'm still also the reason why i'm still working on it 
third that I'm involved in, which is very new, is a foraging ecology study on whale sharks. So in February, I um, submitted a proposal for a postdoc fellowship, which would allow me to work on the uh, traffic ecology of whale sharks in Madagascar. So it's one of the dream projects that I have. It's uh, in collaboration with the Madagascar Whale Shark Project with um, Stella Diamond, another fantastic female um, shark scientist. So we submitted this proposal, which is still ongoing. So I'm waiting for decisions from the fellowship. And in this study, what we would be looking at is uh, we were looking at the traffic ecology of whale sharks through stable ice cap analysis, which is something that hasn't been done in this population in Madagascar. And further on, we would use drones and in-water observations to, to add more information on the traffic ecology because we, would, we know that they're showing those papal feeding behaviors. So we'd be very interested to find out more how are those whale sharks eating together with the birds and the tuna at the same time. So fingers crossed that um, this project will soon be running. So I want to get back into how you said one of your other current things that you're working on is these fertility bracelets, which is something, you know, not with sharks at all. So how did that come about? I know you said you were, you were, you know, just in the job hunt at that point in time. And then kind of then continuing on with that question, like, how are you using what you've learned in your shark research world and being able to apply that to something completely different within the science community? Yes, that's a good question. So as I said, when I finished my PhD, it was in the middle of, of COVID. It was June, 2022. So I was looking for obviously a, a job or a postdoc with like staying in my field, but I, I couldn't find anything at that moment. So through my vast network also here in Switzerland and in Liechtenstein, our neighboring country, I knew of a laboratory that were looking at using a fertility bracelet to detect COVID pre-symptomatically. So I applied there and immediately got accepted because they needed somebody urgently because it was a small, it's a small team in a medical laboratory. So the research part is actually quite small. They needed an additional scientist to help out with their study. So what was actually helpful there was that through all my research that I've been conducting so far with sharks, I'm experienced with the scientific writing process, I'm experienced with the, with the peer-reviewed process. So this was quite helpful for this job as well. And another big plus of that job is that it's a part-time job. So I wouldn't have accepted that job right after my PhD if it, if it were full-time because it wouldn't let me to finish all the ongoing studies I'm still involved in. So it's a part-time job. And at the same time, I was able, or I'm still able to continue with my shark-related research. Yeah, it's, it's different, obviously. My passion and my heart are in the shark field, but it's also super interesting to see something else. And yeah, it's a pandemic and yeah, much rather do something that could help help us in the future, maybe help us with this pandemic to beat it than just waiting and hoping it will get better. 
in this study, it was actually for me also very interesting because despite it's yeah, it's humans that we're working on, it's a similar approach, you know. And what was what we did in this study is that we used a huge cohort of a thousand people, and each one of them got a small fertility bracelet that they can wear on their wrist at night. And this bracelet was measuring the heart rate, the respiratory rate, skin temperature, heart rate variability, for example. And what we wanted to find out is to see if those parameters would be different in people who have COVID compared to people who don't have COVID. And what we found is that actually we were able to find significant differences in those parameters in people who got COVID even though it was only a very small number, it was only 127 out of our thousand people. So we're actually, sounds a little bit mean, but we're hoping to get more positive cases, but we didn't. And usually you always have the issue that some people who were positive didn't use the bracelet enough. You know, you had to wear it often, like a, a whole month every night that you get accurate data. So what we found is that those parameters are actually different in people who have COVID compared to those who didn't. And further on, as I said before, our aim was to see if you can use this bracelet to detect COVID presymptomatically. So what we did is we um, developed that algorithm. This algorithm was able to detect COVID presymptomatically in 70% of the people who had COVID. So that means it found out that they're having COVID before people even felt any symptoms. And that is very promising, but yeah. it's only 70%, right? It's not that much. And our sample size, yeah, as I said before, there were not that many positives. So the good thing about this is our study was a pilot. So the whole, the, this algorithm right now gets um, improved in a bigger study in the Netherlands with 20,000 people. Wow. So yeah, it's massive. So we only had a, we only had a thousand and that was already very challenging, you know, to work with. Yeah. Like not like with sharks where your study object doesn't talk to you, but here we had people who had questions. So I can't even imagine how it must be with 20,000 participants. Wow. So you are one busy scientist. How do you find time to do anything? <laughs> yeah, it's it's a lot. And at the same time, I'm also involved or I'm also working as a um, scientific expedition leader. So I'm leading an expedition to the Red Sea this May, um, where we're going to look for sharks and rays. And I'll be giving um, talks to the broad public. I will use I will give our um, participants of the expedition the possibility to join um, a citizen science project so that's also keeping me busy and yeah um it's it's been a lot but also thanks to COVID, there was a little bit less um outreach activities i guess but they're starting to come back which is also exciting i'm having the first public talk in front of people in april 2022 so in two months which is super exciting yes yeah, so i am just starting to get back in like into like in-person programming again with my job when I'm not doing interviews with, with scientists. And it is so much, it's just like a breath of fresh air. 
and being able to see people in person, mm-hmm. be able to, you know, share science and talk to people and answer their questions in person. So I can't wait for you to be able to do that in April. But just thinking about all these different species that you are working with and all these different projects, that has to be probably a challenge that you face as a scientist to be able to balance all of this and try to like make sure like what is prioritized and what is not, unless you are a complete superstar and you're like, I, I just have this covered. <laughs> Yeah, it is. I mean, it is one of the big challenges for a scientist for, in my opinion, is to to be kind of a multi-talent because you need to be able to organize so many things at the same time. So, yeah, it is quite a big challenge to keep being organized if you have different projects, obviously, with different scientists all working on different schedules different time zone make things even more complicated but in general i do think that one of the biggest challenge as a scientist for me is that you need to be a multi-talent you have to be good at so many things and that makes it so challenging and i when i think about it i think there's for example you need to be good at writing but you don't have to be just good at writing scientific papers. You also have to be good at writing uh, papers for non-peer-reviewed magazines, so articles for the public, and you need to be good at writing grant applications. So that's already three things you need to be good at. And you need to be good at presenting, either if it's at the conference or if you're presenting, as we discussed before, in a, on a, for a public presentation. Another thing that for me comes into the multi-talent uh, version of a scientist is you have to be good at math and statistics. Obviously, without them, you don't get anywhere. You need to be good at reading because you need to be, yeah, you need to keep up with the ongoing uh, research that is, yeah, getting published on a daily basis. In my personal experience, I also had to be good at laboratory and field work because a huge part of my PhD and also about my master's was field work and laboratory work which requests a total like another set of of skills that you need to have which are not directly related to a scientist but you need to be fit because we had to run around the atoll to look for the sharks you need to be able to deal with the tropical weather with the with the heat, with the mosquitoes. So it's a huge set of skills that well, was pretty challenging. And yeah, it's things you don't just learn. You either, well, yeah, you can learn them a little bit, but you need to have the, the mindset as well. And then last but not least for me, uh, a big thing about being a scientist that is challenging is the multilingual approach because um yeah i grew up speaking swiss german and for my scientific career i had to speak english but also living and studying in france and french polynesia i had to speak french as well so it's a constant mix of um, languages as well which does not make it easier (laughs) at some times absolutely not but i think then that's something that's really important to note that you know you have to have all these certain levels being a scientist it's not just going out and executing a science and then writing a paper about it so is that something that you were maybe not expecting as you were kind of going up and getting all of your degrees and then like furthering your career was this something that you knew going into this type of career field that's a good question to be honest to be really honest when i first went to bimini 
So I started my career in Bimini in 2009. I did not have a big idea what it means to be a scientist. So I think I'm more, for me, it was more a step-by-step learning curve, which is still ongoing until this day. So yeah, I was maybe a little bit naive when I first went to Bimini because I also didn't know that that was the, yeah, the point of no return. I thought I'm going to go for three months, do this internship, and then let's see. I did not have a plan. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I mean, also seeing that, you know, you didn't have a plan, but like, look at how that kind of branched out and look at how many now things that you are able to do. So sometimes maybe not having a plan could be nice, but I have, as you've been talking about your different projects and different types of species you've been able to work with, is there a favorite species that you do work with that when you are looking at one of these projects, you're like, oh my gosh, I cannot wait to see the black tip shark or the lemon shark, or is it that you just all love them the same? <laughs> um, good question. I think I do love them all the same. However, my favorite species that I have not worked with directly is um, the hammerhead shark, the scalloped hammerhead shark, to be honest. So that's like my favorite species. And I know there's plenty of people feel the same way. So that's for me, the species, I've seen them in Cocos Island before, but it's like my big dream to see them in, in the Galapagos. So seeing them and studying them would be like the dream I could imagine right now. Mm-hmm. That would be really interesting. You know, that is a shark that I feel like we hear, um, especially with the scientists that we've been able to interview so far on the podcast, been really looking at great hammerhead work or bonnet head, but I haven't heard much about the scalloped hammerhead yet. So that would be an interesting project or projects uh, maybe down the road. Once you wrap up, maybe a few of these that you have on your plate right, <laughs> <laughs> right now. Uh, but looking in through the, these types of projects, is there anything so far that's been your favorite like discovery or aha moment that you've had? Um, that's also a very good question because there is obviously a lot been going on over the last years. But one of the aha moments that still makes me laugh is um, I can't remember in which year it was, it was probably 2016 when we were running around the atoll in, um, in, in Seychelles looking for juvenile sharks to look at their stomach contents. So what we did is we did this uh, gastric lavage. So we looked at what they were eating and then we found like quite often we found some round weird looking things in their stomachs which did not look like a fish it was no skeleton it was no muscle tissue we just didn't know what it was but we obviously kept it uh kept it in the vials but we did not do the dna analysis obviously at sight so i remember i think there was this one morning we again got this round weird looking thing in their stomach and then I had the idea later on in the lab to to cut it open to see what it is and then inside this round weird looking thing was maybe like a centimeters um long or like it was like a it was like a little ball and in the inside there was sand and we found and it was looking out we could see okay it must be a muscle tissue then we started to discuss to Google and then we had the ultimate um, solution. It was a gizzard. So a gizzard is um, kind of a stomach that also takes hard parts. And in our case, it was sand. So those sandy 
like the sand was inside the gizzard and we found the gizzard in the shark. So the next question was from what species are the gizzard? And from Googling again and discussing with our colleagues, we found that the mullets are one of the fish that have gizzards and apparently they stay in the stomach of the sharks when everything else was already digested. So in most of the stomach contents that we found, the, the, the bones were already gone, but this weird looking gizzard was still there. And for me, that was just something so like interesting and exciting, fascinating, because I didn't even know about gizzards before. I only found out about gizzards by looking at stomach contents of juvenile sharks. So I thought that was quite, it was quite funny and so makes me smile till this day. That's so interesting to think that, you know, like bones are being broken down, but not like this, this gizzard, like what, what are like, what properties are they, like what compounds are they made up of that they're able like to withstand that intense digestive process that all sharks have. And like those, like they have really strong stomach acid so they can break down bones and things like that. And that's not being broken down. Oh my gosh, that's, I have like a thousand things running through my mind right now, like trying to process that of like how they're able to not like be processed through. Mm-hmm. I guess, I mean, in some cases there was some um, bones left. It was just, just the gizzard, but it was, it was actually also helpful for us. In some cases we got like, say a few pieces of muscle left, which you would not be able to say what kind of fish that was, but having the gizzard at the same time made it much more likely that it was a mullet. And then we were able to um, confirm that in the lab when I was doing DNA barcoding of the stomach contents, I was able to say what species it was. And it was, it was a mullet. Yeah. So uh, it was, it was pretty cool. (laughs) I know you have a tie into one of our previous podcast episodes, Hannah Med. She's a Gills Club scientist as well. Um, so can you explain a little bit how that collaboration that you have with her? Sure. Yes. It's actually our, it's a collaboration and a friendship that goes on for exactly 10 years now. So we oh, wow. first met, yes, <laughs> uh, January 2012. <laughs> yeah. It's a long time ago. We were actually working on the same project in South Florida on the Jupiter project. It was called, it was conducted by um, Doc and Dr. Steve Kessel at the time. And Hannah and I and other, we were six volunteers. So Hannah was a volunteer and I was a volunteer for that project. And that's how um, we met. And then during, oh, like from then until now, she um, founded her nonprofit organization. And obviously through my PhD, I was visiting Florida quite often because I was doing my um, laboratory work in Florida. So my um, DNA barcoding for my stomach samples and the stable isotopes I conducted in Florida. So I um, saw Hannah very as often as possible. And she then also gave me the possibility to become part of her board, her organization, which allows me to, you know, stay in contact with her interns, with her, with her ongoing projects. It also gave us the opportunity to, to publish a small note last November, actually, November, 2021, we published a small study together on black tips from Florida. So it's a, as I said before, it's a friendship and a collaboration that is ongoing and hopefully more exciting projects will come up in, in the near future. 
That's so exciting to see that you, you met as volunteers on a research project and now 10 years later, you're able still to collaborate in research, but then as well as have that friendship as well. So, but if science world, or maybe it was science world, but maybe not the shark world, was there something else that like, if you weren't doing this, would you be like, I would have been doing this career field instead of you've always been like, I'm going to work in sharks since you were five years old. <laughs> Actually, no, I, since I'm little, I knew I wanted to do something with animals, preferably um, marine animals, but I was not the little kid who was running after sharks because yeah, growing up in a landlocked country like Switzerland, I also yeah, didn't know much about sharks, mm -hmm. but this interest in in the marine environment was very, very strong from early on. Also don't really know why, because my parents were the mountain mm -hmm. um, parents. They, they, uh, they um, took me up to all the, the mountain peaks, which I did not really like. So I always look forward to our um, family holidays on, on the ocean. So it was this deep interest for marine science. And then the big, big um, luck of being accepted as a volunteer in Bimini for me changed everything. It was actually the first time I I saw a shark. So I didn't even see a shark in real in the wild before going to Bimini, which yeah, I was 22 or something. So it's quite late. But now looking back, I wouldn't want any other way. I don't want it any other way. I love it the way my life has been going so far. And yeah every day is different and it's it's staying interesting I have to say <laughs> <laughs> absolutely I mean that's incredible your first shark at 22 like that's so insane to think that you know you had this passion for the ocean without not even being able to see an ocean let alone see a shark until you know your first round of schooling and be able then to go down there and help out at Bimini but to wrap up our interview because I don't want to keep you for too long is then what advice would you give your younger self as you were coming up through the field um I think I have yeah two little advices one definitely is for everyone who has the possibility who is privileged like we are to follow your dream because and yeah love what you do and follow your dream I know it's not possible for everyone um, I was, I grew up privileged. Um, I mean, I went to school, I had wonderful family, I still have. So um, this for me is, yeah, follow what, what your inner self tells you. It's, it's the most important thing. And the second thing for me is that, which I've experienced myself, sometimes in life, there's, there's some, like some tiny, tiny open doors and I would say to my younger self, don't wait until this door opens, just go yourself, open it and look what's behind because most of the doors, they don't just open by themselves. You have to add some effort. You have to be there at the right, right time sometimes as well, but putting in your own efforts is always important. Yeah. Not, not many things in life just happen. You have to fight and work for it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think that is great advice to end on today. So I want to say thank you so much for spending some time with us today to teach us all about the many projects that are going on with you and your life. Thank you so much for this conversation. It was lovely. And uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to until everything is published. So fingers crossed.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Gills Talk podcast. Please remember to rate, subscribe, and review. And as always, remember to stay curious, stay inspired, and always learn. And we'll catch you on the next episode. Bye, everyone.